0: You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Richard. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. And you?
1: I can't complain. Uh, And I'm very happy that you're with us to explain the latest financial calamity. This is when you get an email from me when there's financial trouble brewing. You were you were with us uh, when the pandemic uh, started and we and the, the, the financial collapse began to to walk us through that. Let me, let me introduce uh, both of us. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a non-zero podcast. You're Richard Vague. Um, you, the thing you've done most recently that's relevant to the conversation we're about to have is uh, you've written a piece for the Journal of Democracy called The SVB failure, why it happened and what it means, where SVB stands for Silicon Valley Bank. I want to talk about all that, talk about um, where we stand in this thing, whether uh, it could get, whether we should be worried and so on. Uh, Let me uh, talk about your various uh, relevant credentials. I mean, first of all, you've written some books. Uh, the, uh, The Next Economic Disaster is one we discussed on this podcast, A Brief History of doom the case for a debt jubilee um and also nice coffee table book uh if people need a gift for the uh in their life uh, called an illustrated business history of the united states lots of uh illustrations and, and graphs and so on uh you also have a lot of vocational experience that's relevant to this conversation um you've been president of uh or ceo of first usa bank and Juniper Financial. You're also venture capitalist. And of course, SVB served venture capitalists. And you were uh, Secretary of Banking and Securities for Pennsylvania. Now, does that mean um, you were the rough equivalent of the California authorities who stepped in and closed down Silicon Valley Bank uh, a couple of weeks ago?
0: That's exactly right.
1: So this was your job to spot trouble and close yeah. banks.
0: <laughs> up until january,
1: up until January, did you have to close any banks?
0: We did not well, we good. we we kept an eye on a few though.
1: <laughs> How close did you come
0: did, eh, did, you, not have that to, did you have to no, pick no, up the no, phone no.
1: and say maybe you should liquidate a few assets or anything like that
0: well you know the 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 folks that I had the privilege of managing as supervisor or secretary of banking were superb, and we're all over this. So California should be so fortunate.
1: Okay. Well, uh, so before we get into kind of exactly what happened, uh, whether there were regulatory failures, what improvements maybe should be made in the regulatory structure, should we be worried uh, that this thing isn't quite over? I mean, the Wall Street Journal hasn't quit featuring like, Three consecutive pieces on the homepage that are relevant to this. I noticed. I'll relax as soon as a uh, you know you you see uh, a story about something wholly different as, as the lead piece in the Wall Street Journal. Um, what what's uh I, in the piece you wrote for for Democracy Journal of Ideas? Uh, you sounded pretty pretty calm. Yeah, you, know, you thought, and this was written about a week ago, I guess. But at that point, you didn't imagine a lot of contagion seem to be under control?
0: Yeah, what we said in the article, we'll we'll, we'll see continued failure perhaps of a few small banks or smaller banks and that we'll uh, see something happen with Credit Suisse. Sure enough, something happened with Credit Suisse. Um, You know, there'll be continued uh, reverberations, but, you know, what I really want to contrast it to is 2008. We're not going to see anything of near that magnitude. You know, this inha- increases the chances of a of a recession of what I would consider to be, you know, if it happens, a ordinary recession. But your interest rates are still high. The Fed isn't reducing interest rates, so any bank that was experiencing stress in their bond portfolio is still experiencing stress in their bond portfolio. Um, the regulators need to remain alert. Uh, you know, I, I assume there won't be much else, but there'll be a few other things, I would guess. Mm-hmm.
1: And the Fed is going to make a decision like what, today or tomorrow? Or something? Is there news coming out this week about whether they will raise rates? The expectation was that they would have raised them had this not happened. And now it's not so clear, right?
0: Well, keep keep it in perspective. the The Fed has raised rates a scorching 450 basis points. And you know, for anybody who you know wasn't paying attention, that's that an like enormous level of increase.
1: Pardon, I, I said, is that uh, basically a four point five percent point five four point five percent increase? Yeah, four point
0: five percent from okay. zero to four and a half percent in the Fed funds market. So that's an enormous increase. And contrast that to the Volcker era when. We had only half as much debt in the United States as a percent of GDP. In my opinion, that means a 450 basis point increase today has the impact of a seven or eight or 900 basis point increase did in 1980. Mm-hmm. It has that much additional breaking power. And I say breaking, intending both meanings of the term, breaking in terms of decelerating and breaking in terms of what we saw at SVB. Uh, so you know all this kind of nonchalant talk about you know the Fed could raise rates another half point because of the demon inflation and maybe only a quarter point you know just masks the magnitude of what's occurred and you know the 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 stress that it's created on the system so I you know I, I think the current wisdom is that they'll only raise uh, a quarter of a point this week but I would. I would suggest the phrase only is continues to be somewhat ironic in the context of everything that's occurred over the last few months.
1: Okay. So they're really uh they're really pulling out kind of the the big the big weapons already the, uh, to fight inflation in your view the, the the Fed has already gone pretty far. The you you mentioned uh debt to GDP ratio. Let let's uh go on a very brief tangent here because you've done a lot of work on on the question of what leads to huge financial uh problems you know like the Great Depression and so on and economic collapse and in your view a key variable if not the key variable is debt to GDP ratio and you note that this has been growing for some time it sounds like I don't know I, I assume it's been it's grown since the last time we talked and, and one thing I wondered, uh, is how concerned you are on that front, whether the overall debt burden, and we should uh, emphasize, you mean both private debt and government debt, not just government debt. In fact, private debt is most of the story. Um, and uh, I, w- I was wondering whether that, how worried you are about that and whether this kind of thing could feed into that. Could Could a, could a banking, could a contagion of kind of banking panic trigger the apocalypse that you think a high debt to GDP ratio is kind of courting to begin with. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I do.
0: I I do sort of view them as separate things that can be coincident and therefore make things a lot worse. In in this case, debt ratio and, and by debt ratio, you're right. I I mean, both government and debt. But what I primarily mean is private sector debt. Mm-hmm. You know, the government more or less can't default on its debt, except in the technical sense of like a debt ceiling or something like that, that quickly gets resolved. But uh, the, the government can always fund its debt. It's, you know, what the power of the, the Federal Reserve and in a sovereign monetary system. But it's private sector debt. So the Great Depression was a runaway real estate lending and utility roll-up lending, believe it or not. Uh, we know it was runaway mortgage lending in the 2000s. In Japan, it was runaway commercial real estate lending in the late 1980s. It's been fairly benign over the last decade. We haven't seen a big run-up. The, the, there's little pockets of concern, one of them being tech that we've mentioned a few times over the last year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a big part of that is what, you know, SVP was, SVB was doing. You know, we see a little private equity concern, but those are small slices of the U.S. debt markets and the U.S. economy. Uh, So it doesn't give us general credit concerns, nor do I think this uh, exacerbates that. If anything, what's going to happen now is that banks are, probably going to become more conservative in their lending for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the likelihood of kind of runaway lending in any particular sector is decreased.
1: Okay. So let's, let's talk a little about what happened. Tell me if I've got this more or less right. So, you know, banks, they take our money. uh, They tell us it's safe, but it's, it's not actually there in the bank. Like as if the bank were a vault, they actually go do things with the money. Uh, they, they uh, and, you know, they invest it and there are rules about, you know, how much they have to keep there in uh, purely liquid form and cash. Uh, but most of it goes elsewhere, uh, which is fine. So long as a whole bunch of customers don't come back and demand their money at once. Uh, but, but, once concerns about a bank start growing uh and word spreads that maybe the bank is in trouble a bunch of customers might come and demand uh and, and start withdrawing money that happened in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and, and that was a bank because it served a bunch of companies a bunch of small startups and and other companies a whole lot of them had deposits well in excess of the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar insured federal limit. That's why they panicked. Uh, And and then the other uh, half of the story is that the the bank had gotten into trouble because in taking money and investing it, it had invested in these, I guess, mid to long term, uh, anyway, longer than uh, than short term uh, bonds, I I guess mainly treasury bonds. But then after they did that, interest rates went up. So that's not a problem as long as they don't have to liquidate the bonds, because they'll still get the money that the bond guarantees over the course of the lifetime of the bond. But if a bunch of people start withdrawing money, then they do have to liquidate the bonds, and and and, and the short term value of the bonds in the event that you have to liquidate them had actually dropped because interest rates had risen. So nobody nobody wanted to buy these low interest rates bond, bonds anymore. You know, they're uh, and, and and so that's kind of the essence of the problem they faced. Is that right?
0: Yes. You, you've uh, captured it very, very well. Um, What I would start by saying is that banks are inherently highly leveraged. People don't generally think about this, but this is good times, bad times, you name it. Banks are leveraged at kind of a minimum of 10 to one, which means 10 times more debt than capital. And in some cases, that can grow to 20 or 30 to one. You know, your average commercial lender wouldn't lend to a business that had leverage of more than like two to one or one and a half to one or three to one. Banks as an industry are inherently highly leveraged, which means you have to manage them very carefully because risk can throw them off kilter very, very easily. And that's why we have such frequent uh, banking issues. In this case, Silicon Valley Bank kind of broke one of the two or three cardinal rules of banking. And that rule is don't invest short term assets in long term, you know, long short term funding and long term assets. Mm-hmm. So they took, you know, demand deposits, which are, have a maturity of zero. And they were putting in in what we presume was about an average ten year um, bond, mm-hmm. and so what what you say happened? Their twenty one billion dollar uh, bond portfolio that was you know available were called available for sale, meaning they were free to uh, buy and sell it uh, as a trading asset, declined from twenty one billion about 19 billion so that was a 2 billion or 1.8 billion dollar loss well that was kind of real money i took them under regular regulatory capital minimums but that's a violation of a cardinal rule i mean this is banking 101 you know you're supposed to invest short-term funding in short-term assets you know 30 day 90 day sorry go ahead.
1: okay yeah well let me ask you a question i was wondering about this has it always, has that always been the expectation? Because I was thinking about the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Where there's about to be, a there's a bank run in progress. Jimmy Stewart shows up and calms everybody down. And he says, hey, Bill, you know, the money you deposited in the bank, that's in Harry's house, you know, because Harry got the mortgage. And that's in, in Sam's hardware store, because that's the loan that, and those were, uh those were not, I would assume those were not highly liquid assets right I mean now of course mortgages are bundled and sold as if they were like you know candy bars or something but but in those wasn't it at one point the case that actually the, the investments were long term and so bank run could be fatal I mean if they if banks did what you're recommending and had and all the investments were just completely liquid there couldn't be a bank run right? Cause the money would always, you could always uh, deliver a hundred percent of the deposits if you really had to. Does that make sense?
0: Well, let, let's talk about that because um, banks are supposed to manage their assets and liabilities to be matched. And if you have a long-term asset, like a mortgage, you're supposed to secure long-term funding. You know, the average mortgage has a seven year maturity. So you mm-hmm. should get seven year funding. We'll Let's come back to that point. But, You're supposed to keep reports. The regulators are supposed to examine those reports. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to audit those reports. You're supposed to stress test that scenario. And if there's a mismatch, you're supposed to resolve it. So that's a cardinal rule. Banking, if you go back to the early 1700s in Scotland and carry it forward, has always been a bank. You know, the early banks in the U.S., the average loan was 90 days. So... The, the mortgage and banks didn't make real estate loans. In fact, in the 1920s, banks' average real estate mm-hmm. mortgage loan was five years in maturity. There mm-hmm. weren't 30-year mortgages. And the savings and loan industry that Jimmy Stewart, you know, exemplified, and it's a wonderful life, was an aberration mm-hmm. for the very reason you suggest. And it was always a mismatch. And we saw what happened in the 1980s to the savings and loan industry. It almost failed en masse as a result of that. And today, banks appropriately don't carry mortgages on their balance sheet, by and large, for the very reason you say and by the very method you suggest. That's why securitization came about, was a way to restore asset and liability matching uh, for a bank. So, no, it's... It's a cardinal rule, and it's a cardinal rule that should be followed, and it wasn't followed, and a bank failed here.
1: Does that mean there was a regulatory failure, an oversight failure? Well, you know, we're
0: hearing a couple of things. You know, I, you know, I, I, what I said in, in the article I wrote was, you know, I want to give the regulators the benefit of the doubt, but that the regulatory apparatus is really not oriented to intervening too soon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: you know, we, we've, you know, we've studied in our book, Brief History of Doom, we look at 43 major banking crises over six countries over 200 years. So, we you know, we have a little bit of a database. But, you know, in the, in the 1980s, you know, Edwin Gray tried to intervene, uh, you know, against the savings and loan industry and a, a group of six senators, uh, you know, famously intervened to have him removed and put a more compliant regulator in, it's just it's the, the whole apparatus just doesn't work that way. Regulators, in my view, are better and more oriented to intervening after the trouble has begun. And mm-hmm. I would actually argue that's a that's something that we need to rethink. Mm-hmm.
1: So, in theory, I mean, if you're if you if you've got your house in order, if you're a banker and you're doing things right, you should. Every dollar that is just a deposit, that, that, that is just like a checking deposit, and people expect that they can go in and ask for all of it and get it, every dollar like that should be matched by an asset that is extremely liquid, uh, a, a, you know, and is worth a dollar. And if for any reason that changes, you should do something right away. I mean, you, you probably can't reduce the in- amount of deposits in the bank, but you need to raise capital. You you right. I mean, that's the way banks are supposed to run. So, so no bank run well should have been in this position to begin with.
0: Yeah, in my banking career, which I, you know, I was in banking for over 30 years, we would meet on this weekly. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, we had extended meetings weekly in which we tested asset asset liability scenarios. There's one more scenario beyond what you suggest, and that is this idea of liquidity. That I should have actually excess liquidity. Our policy at First USA, as one example, was we ha- we carried so much excess liquidity that if the world fell apart and we had no access to anything for six months, we'd still be fine. Most of, most of the world doesn't do that. We did it, and, you know, we think the most conservative banks do. The reason they don't do it is it's expensive. Right. It's like buying an expensive insurance policy. Mm-hmm. It's it's more profitable to run in a riskier way than than we ran and then clearly that SVB ran.
1: Yeah. Uh, so David Sachs, whom I think maybe you mentioned in your piece because, uh, you know, he's a, a, a VC in Silicon Valley and he was involved in uh, kind of on social media trying to get the regulator's attention uh, <laughs> get them to do something dramatic over the weekend, which they did. Um, but he he's uh, floated this idea that so I guess first of all he's saying there should be banks um, where businesses can deposit a large amount of money, which they kind of need to do. I mean, you could well that's it's a separate question whether they really need to or whether they 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 could uh, actually. Um, Avoid having this situation where their deposits are so in excess of the two hundred fifty thousand dollar insured limit. But anyway, certainly easier for them if they can put a ton of money in a bank. And and I think he's saying that there should be banks where that can happen. Uh, but um, if you're if you're going to make sure the money is safe, they should change the required accounting system to so-called uh, mark-to-market. In other words, fine. Go ahead and invest in your long-term bonds, but you know every you have to keep updating uh, the 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 value you attribute to those assets according to what you would get for them if you had to liquidate them today. So if the value of the asset drops because the interest rates rise, then your 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 books have to reflect that. Suddenly you've got fewer assets and you need to deal with that. Raise more capital, do something, but you got to keep your books in balance. Uh, Does that sound like uh, do I do I have that proposal right? I'm sure you've heard things like it.
0: No, uh, there could be more more robust reporting there, but there was already sufficient reporting where that was known. Anybody with a basic understanding of financial Uh report would have known that, you know, a month before, a quarter before, a year before. You know, it was, it, there was enough so, uh, information.
1: The regu- the regulators read the Wall Street Journal. They could have told you that these assets had dropped in value. Well,
0: re- and reportedly the regulators had been in there. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll know one way or the other, I think, over time. But, you know, the little re- stories that are leaking out, the regulators had been in for, you know, a year or more in very pointed discussions about this very thing, Um they, they had had, uh, you know, BlackRock come in and do an audit of their risk management uh, processes and had found that they were deficient in 11 out of 11 risk management processes. You know, they, they were, you know this was well known and well understood. So, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, we could do a little bit more reporting, a little bit more clearly. And the other thing that I would say is corporations are supposed to do some risk management themselves. In any company I've been in and in any bank I've been in, we had a risk management policy regarding where we put our assets. And clearly, not many, if any, of these companies that were depositors at SVB had an internal risk management process themselves. And by the way, risk management is not that hard. Mm -hmm. You know, diversify your assets. You know, that might ring a bell you know don't mm-hmm. put all your eggs in one basket these are these are risk management 101 type concepts mm-hmm. and it should be a written policy it should be audited monthly or quarterly you know your risk assessment of your counterparties which is what these are called uh, should occur frequently you know you, and you know we're only 15 years away from the great financial crisis and only 2 years away from the pandemic how is it these folks didn't have a risk manager?
1: They didn't even, you mean there's, there's, there's an official, they should have uh, an executive they should have had that they didn't have. They didn't.
0: Uh... freaking lootly
1: Really? So there's like a, there's like a person, there's a job Excuse that me. responsible Excuse banks have. Excuse me. And, yeah.
0: Excuse me. <laughs> any operating business of any type, even if it's the local hot dog stand should do a lot of thinking and planning around risk management
1: and, and it's kind just,
0: of
1: it's standard practice and it's more or less standard practice at banks and svb just didn't do it they just didn't have a person who well i'm
0: not talking about you know who who knows i mean i hear that their software didn't properly calculate the value of the bonds but <laughs> you know you know it, they probably at some point in time you know started to to have these kind mm. of things but I guess there's two things about a risk manager. One is that they, you should have one. And secondly, they should know what they're doing. And thirdly, I guess they should have the authority. Yeah. But I'm not just talking about the bank. I'm talking about the businesses that deposited at the bank.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about that because I I mean, you know, first of all, I mean, they should be aware that only $250,000 is, uh, is, 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 secure in the sense of being insured by the federal government. And it seems to me there are ways to I understand they got to meet payrolls but but a lot of these are startups. It's not like every two weeks they're paying out a whole lot more than 250,000 in payroll. I mean it it seems to me in principle um that if they if they have their money in two or three banks and then they make regular transfers from some money market fund or something they should be able to avoid having the massive exposure that apparently they had. They had millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars of uninsured money sitting in a bank. You know, some of them I gather. And yeah. and that's kind of crazy. Right. And avoid you. You you. It sounds like you yourself could serve
0: as risk manager for one of these. Institutions. I'm
1: available. So. It pays better than <laughs> what I'm doing.
0: You know, the answer is, of course. And I, I've been a, I've been amazed and appalled at the number of folks that I've talked to, reasonably sophisticated business people I've talked to since you know two Fridays ago, that um, weren't even aware of the FDIC insurance limit.
1: Wow! Uh, this and, is ba- how-
0: these are basic things, and, and 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 you know, may I say my what the conclusion of my article. Is basically all businesses forget. I mean, this is I'm overstating what I wrote, but you know, more or less, most businesses forget most of the things they know about risk management fairly quickly. And yeah. it, and it's not just it's not just. I'll give you another one. You know, putting all your money in one bank is risky. Having all your buying all your supplies from one supplier is an equivalent risk. You know, anybody that's getting all their manufacturing done in China wasn't thinking about risk management. You know, in that case, supply chain risk management. So risk management really Im- impacts every aspect of every business.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. And I wonder how much of this, I mean, as you say, it's not uncommon for businesses to lose sight of risk. But I wonder how much of this has to do with kind of the spirit of Silicon Valley in a way. I, I mean, let me let me let me put it this way. Uh, you know, as you know, as a VC, that the standard VC model, I think, especially in Silicon Valley, is, you know, you're going to invest in 10 companies. You fully expect most of them to fail. It's just that you're investing in the kinds of businesses where if the business clicks, it's going to make, you know, huge returns because it's in some kind of business where there are network externalities or whatever. That's kind of the Silicon Valley model. And that means, You're investing in a bunch of largely young entrepreneurs who themselves are probably pretty risk averse because whether they realize it or not, they're probably going to fail. They're going for the brass ring and they're probably going to fail. So they are these ambitious, hard charging people probably don't think a lot about risk. Isn't it the job of the VC? You know, once they've invested in a company, maybe they have a seat on the board to say to pull these 24-year-olds aside and say, listen, let me explain to you what, the, the, you know, the FDIC is. How much of your money in this bank is actually insured? I mean, wasn't there a failure there?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're starting to get, you know, one or two layers removed. I mean, I, we know very successful VCs that are very hands-on with their companies, and we know equally successful VCs that are completely hands-off with their companies. So, you know, you know, I, I, I think... The company, I I would put most of the burden on the companies themselves, but Mm. there's some truth to what you say.
1: And uh, do you think uh, SVB itself got swept up in the spirit of Silicon Valley, the kind of devil may care, uh, you know, attitude that could lead you to pay insufficient attention to risk? This is surely conjectural. I guess I'm, I'm asking you to be some kind of cultural commentator or something, but.
0: Yeah, but you know, I, I, again, I would, I would say we've studied forty, the forty-three biggest financial crises in history over the last two hundred years in the largest six countries, and you know, we can point to every combination of circumstances. You, know, mm-hmm. but but the common denominator is they just stopped paying much attention to risk and 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 had some element of hubris or whatever that. You know, cause them to not take as much risk as serious as they might, certainly, what you say is true, there's lots of other sets of circumstance that uh end up at the same result
1: mm-hmm. um, I now, would go so
0: far as to say it's endemic to human nature to discount risk, uh,
1: yeah, I would say that too. uh people differ greatly uh it's amazing how much variation there is among people actually in their in their kind of natural aversion to risk. Um, but I, I think often you wind up with relatively risk averse people uh, running organizations for whatever reason. Um, the are uh, not whatever I, I meant, not so risk averse people, um, perhaps especially in Silicon Valley. But uh, let me, should people. So there's an argument over whether you should call this a bailout, a backstop, uh, whether people should be outraged, you know, one one line, of course, is that Silicon Valley has no few libertarian-oriented people who are generally not fans of the government. You know, uh, spending a lot of money to to help people through their troubles, and suddenly they're, they they want the government to to step in in a big way and make sure that their money is safe. There's there, there's that whole complaint and the complaint that this is a bailout. How do you think we should think about the government's performance here? Whether, I mean, the government has said taxpayers aren't going to be on the hook for this, but somebody, you know, the cost is going to be diffused somewhere and somebody's going to have to pick it up, probably to the extent there is cost. What, what's your take on the way we should think about this and whether we should be indignant?
0: Well, you know, the the strange way the world works is that we need these reminders from time to time. Folks forget the lessons and there ha- there has to be something, you know, catastrophic or semi-catastrophic or at least painful happen uh, to remind folks and refocus on this. They so just, you know, you know, we 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 look at the entire, you know, 250-year history of the United States of financial markets and I keep trying to find, you know, a, a nice little 20-year Slice of history where there isn't, you know, some calamity. Well, it just doesn't exist. You mm-hmm. know, if you, once you dig into it, there's, there's more calamities and disruptions than we remember. So, um, you know, the other thing that I would suggest is, you know, folks, imagine this, this past where business in the United States was laissez faire and government and business were separate. Well, no such period in American history exists. You know, the government was deeply involved in business from all the way back to the days of the American Revolution when folks were training manufacturers and financing manufacturers to build weapons and and bullets and f- 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 stealing intellectual property from, you know, it was Tench Cox and his guys that stole intellectual property from, Britain to start you know you know an industrial revolution here in the United States and it was government that financed the Erie Canal and it was you know government that financed much of the massive railroad exp- you know there's no such thing as a period where business and government weren't deeply intertwined they're 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 interdependent if not codependent so yes business should have done better here and yes It's clear the government could have intervened and didn't. Uh, So I would, you know, I would uh, suggest that it's an important reminder that ought to cause us to rethink risk management from both directions.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, people talk about moral hazard, right? Like the trouble with stepping in and saving everyone is that then they won't learn the painful lesson and they will repeat it. Now, in this case, the shareholders in the bank did learn their lesson. They lost their money, right? And, and that's, that's good, I guess, because it was the bank fundamentally that was failing to tend to its risk management. But as we've also said, um, the depositors in which were Silicon Valley companies, by and large, were, were not uh, doing their due diligence and, and thinking through risk and, they're basically getting off scot-free because the government decided to step in, and we should be clear about this, and exceed their legal responsibilities, uh, responsibility to insure up to 250000 In effect, they decided, actually, we're insuring an infinite amount of deposits. Your money is safe. And, and they stepped in. And uh, again, taxpayers aren't going to be on the hook for this. I think they're going to pay for it via some kind of, Kind of the banking industry is going to be taxed, but that does mean that somebody's going to pay, you know, banking customers are going to pay some amount or something. Um. So anyway, some some people argue, well, that's a moral hazard problem if, if the Silicon Valley companies don't have to pay any price for their uh, negligence. Uh, but do you think that, look, we basically had to do this to stop uh, what could have been a much wider contagion? Yeah,
0: I, you know it's it's a kind of a lesser of two evils scenario the but let me let me step back for a moment and say the United States had many banking crises before FDIC insurance ever existed. You know we had major banking crises in 1796, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873 1884, 1893, 1907, 1914, 1921. You know, we had plenty of these where depositors lost their money and, you know, could have or should have known not, you know, not to have their deposits in a trouble bank. So, you know, the the moral hazard argument isn't airtight. But, yeah, there's a little of that there. Uh, but mm-hmm. as you you suggested there were folks that suffered the consequences, management of the bank, uh, uh, the shareholders of the bank. In the case of Credit Suisse, the, you know, some of the bondholders, you know, have learned that, you know, this, you know, cocoa bond or this kind of fake equity bond got wiped out. And uh, so there's there's some. But if we're down to that last piece, which is depositors over 250,000, you have zero time to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And it's a lesser of two bad choices kind of a decision. You know, you know, lots of little people can get hurt over here or we save some people that don't deserve to be saved over here. Take your pick.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned all these past crises. I, one thing I didn't realize until uh, I read your piece is that the FDIC was originally create we now think of it as this kind of inflation manager you know via interest rate uh management but uh it was created to be a lender of last resort and and uh so that it could do things like stop bank panics and before that apparently the big banks like JP Morgan just kind of took it upon itself to be the lender of last resort to head off panics it's funny I saw a tweet from uh or whatever that guy's name is, who uh, famously, you know, he, he does, what is it? Is it one of those uh, shows on on the Financial Cable Network? Uh, you know him. He's super famous. But um, he tweeted, J.P. Morgan is a fortress. And now I'm starting to think that must have been a quote that was pulled from the distant past, and it was a little joke on his part. Because now, I mean, J.P. Morgan is one of the big four banks, and now the idea is that that is the fortress, that. That if worse came to worse and panic swept all the small banks, you know, the four big banks would be left standing and through some kind of, you know, government, government orchestrated uh, rejiggering, they would absorb the liabilities, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but um I guess you know in that sense, maybe things haven't changed so much we We do have to rely on the big banks ultimately uh to be willing no, I, to... i'm not
0: i'm not sure i I buy that you know so you know and big banks are are you know like to portray them would would love the fact that you said that you mm-hmm. know that you know because you know in two thousand and eight they were in the exact opposite role they were the had to be rescued, and the government had to save them big banks aren't big enough. In, by any stretch of the imagination to handle a real panic. And, and that's the issue. The Federal Reserve is. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, it all started, you know, back, you know, England was having its crises. You know, the the modern banking industry didn't really come about until late 1700s and uh, early 1800s. And the Bank of England had been created in 1694 and kind of evolved into the role that Walter Badgett, who was the editor of the the Economist described mm-hmm. as this lender of land last resort. Role it could come in, and that in those days by supplying gold. By the way, um, uh, you know, as the the last line of defense, and we didn't have one. You know, we we never had a central bank. You know, until 1913, and it was because of the crisis of 1893, which was massive. Mm-hmm and the one in 1907, which was almost as massive. And in both cases, J.P. Morgan personally, not just his bank, you know, he called the meetings and got the bankers in a room mm-hmm. and says, you do this, and you do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's kind of an uncomfortable position to have to depend on the ad hoc, uh, you know, accumulation of enough banks to intervene in a case like that. And so, that's what was the impetus for the movement that resulted a few years later in the creation of the Federal Reserve. It was supposed to be the guy that could step in and stop everything. In fact, the first chairman of the Fed said, we'll never have another banking panic as a result of the fact that we now have the Federal Reserve Bank. And, you know, of course, that wasn't the case because in 29, the, even the Fed, you know, uh, uh, didn't, didn't step up to do exactly what had been created to do and we we had uh, uh, the Great Depression, uh, so, but you know, the, for a real cry, this is a, this is not a crisis equivalent to two thousand and eight. So uh, you know, it may you know, in the, in this case, J P Morgan is trying to s- save a relatively small bank here in you know the Philly area called First Republic, and he you was know, having to scramble oh, and scramble oh, and First scramble Republic? to even make that happen.
1: The first republics in Philadelphia. I didn't know that because that's the that is the big Wall Street Journal story now. What's going to happen with that? So if you were still in office, you would be uh, you wouldn't have time to talk to me. You'd be dealing with that if you were still the Secretary of Banking and Securities there in Pennsylvania, right? I mean, this would be occupying your time.
0: Probably would, and um, but you know that I get. I guess what the point I'm trying to make is banks like J.P. Morgan are stepping in to try to resolve that situation and it's taking a massive effort on the part of jp morgan and the other lenders there so you know they they couldn't step in if we had anything going on at the level of 08
1: okay last uh question on this subject before we uh move on to something else is uh so these uh these be- these smaller banks had successfully lobbied, I mean, including SVB, to um to be liberated from some of the requirements associated with Dodd Frank, and uh, I gather. And so they were under less, in some sense, regulatory scrutiny than they might have been a few years ago. Did did that? I mean, how <laughs> how outraged should we be? No, I guess that's not quite the question. Question: Did that really contribute to this? And uh, should they? Uh, should that be reversed? I mean, and in general, what kind of, what kind of new, if any, regulatory uh, legislation should there be?
0: You know, it took away a little bit of the oversight of um, things like you know asset liability and liquidity management, but the regulators still had the powers they needed to do something, you know, perhaps it wasn't as prescriptive, Mm -hmm. you know, it would have had, it would have more relied on the judgment of the regulators rather than the formula of legislation. Uh, but let's be clear, you know, the regulators had plenty of tools to deal with this. I do think we ought to be thoughtful and, and, and look at, at the minimum, which was raised from 50 billion to 250 billion Um, but there, there, there was plenty, uh, for the regulator regulatory community to rely on to, to intervene.
1: Okay. All right. So we have reached, um, the end of the, the public, uh, part of the podcast. We, you and I are going to keep talking a little and, uh, uh, and, and change the subject a little. I want to, I want to hear more about, You know, your history as a successful entrepreneur, I want to talk a little about a hobby horse of mine, which is the value of cognitive empathy or perspective taking in the the realm of business, for example. Um, uh, And if anybody wants to listen to that, they can subscribe to the non-zero newsletter, uh, become a paid subscriber, um, and then they'll have access to that. You can actually do that in the show notes on your on your smartphone to this podcast. There's a link to uh, the Substack uh, site where you can subscribe. Uh, you can also, uh, if you don't feel compelled to listen to the rest of this, uh, become an unpaid subscriber. Uh, you, you get stuff that way too. Um, but in any event, thanks everybody who's listened this far, and thanks Richard for um, uh, uh, for taking the time. Before you and I continue conversation. Anything else you want to say about your work? Uh, we've mentioned uh, some of your books, but if any of them are particularly relevant or anything you're doing online that you want people to be aware of. Well, I have a new book
0: coming out in July called The Paradox of Debt, which will be a new view of macroeconomics. So, so uh, I'm very excited about that hope folks find it of value.
1: OK, well, thank you. And now let's uh, move into overtime.